Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Jill on Money, we are conquering the concept of fear. Fear isn't the enemy waiting to stop feeling afraid is. So many people have this notion that if they just prepare enough, they research enough, they get ready enough that there's going to come a day where they're not going to feel that fear. And that's just total BS. We're going to have fear until we die. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Remember, this is the program where we provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and your life. And today, no different. Our guest, Marie Forleo. She's got a huge YouTube following. She's written a book called Everything is Figure Outable. Hey, how can you not love that? If everything is figure outable, I'm all in. So here is our interview with Marie Forleo. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. This program is really geared towards how do people manage their financial lives and get better at the work that they do. And you've done a lot of coaching. So I want to start with a pretty easy question. What was the best career decision you ever made? The best career decision I ever made was quitting Wall Street, quitting being on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. That was my first gig out of college. And I was really excited, first of all, and really grateful to have that position. You know, um, I'm the first in my family to go to college. My parents, we don't come from a lot of money. So this was a really exciting opportunity. And I'm a person who has a ton of energy. So when I was an undergrad, thinking about like sitting at a desk every single day, pushing papers, I wanted to stick a fork in my eye. It was like, there's no way I can do that. So to land this position on the floor where you're running around literally all day long, you're in the middle of the financial capital of the world, you're getting to see all this action, learning all these things, I was psyched. Now, may I ask what year that was? That was 1998-ish, seven-ish, eight-ish. So you were a clerk or a runner? I was an assistant to the trader, so I was running around. So you left that. Let's go back in time and do your origin story. You're a Jersey girl. I am. I am. I grew up uh, in New Jersey to an Italian-American home. Uh, our home was the kind that had plastic covers on the couches. That was really? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, man. Yeah. No, my mom, everyone's protective. You can't spill stuff on the couch. You got to keep it nice. Money. That's right. And so, you know, one of the things I remember as a child was when adults would say, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? I never had one good answer. I had like 17. And those answers would evolve as I, you know, became a teenager and then a young adult. And I somehow had this idea that when I went into college and I never knew anyone that went to college, that I would somehow magically pop out the other end with one clear thing to be, you know, to call myself. That didn't happen. But being on the floor of the exchange, it was exciting at first. But I'll tell you, here's what happened in my experience. After about six months, it was like I heard this voice inside. At first, it started out as a whisper, and then it just knocked me over. And it was, this isn't who you are. Mm. This isn't what you're meant to do. This isn't who you're meant to be. You have to leave. And that was a terrifying proposition to me because I didn't have a backup plan. I don't have a trust fund. My parents busted their buns to put me through school. Mm. And so I felt all this conflict. But I remember one day just walking on the floor and I started to feel physically ill, like dizzy, nauseous, what I can associate now is maybe like a mild panic attack. And I told my boss that one of the, the specialists, I said, hey, I got to go out and get some coffee again. The days before there was a cafeteria that it was a backdrop. And he said, no problem, go out. And rather than go to get 
some coffee, I made a beeline to the nearest church. I had uh, gone to Seton Hall University Mm -hmm. and I was raised Catholic. And so in a crisis, my first go-to was just to look up and just ask for a little guidance, a little help. So I was sitting on the church steps and I was crying my eyes out because, well, I just felt, I felt so conflicted. I was like, I'm grateful to have a job. I'm grateful to have a paycheck. I'm grateful to have this health insurance. My parents busted their buns to put me through school and all I want to do is quit and I don't have a backup plan. I need some help here. And the first sign I got was to call my dad. So I opened my flip phone, remember those? Yeah. And called him and I was bawling. And, you know, when he could get a word in edgewise, he's like, Re, calm down. He's like, you've been working since you're nine years old. I'm not worried about you finding some job to keep roof over your head and put food on the table. He's like, but here's the secret to life. You're going to work for the next 40, 50 years. And if you don't find something you absolutely love, you're going to be miserable. So if you need to quit this job and go figure out what it is you're meant to do, do it. But now is the time. And that was like the permission slip I needed because I I didn't want to feel ashamed. I didn't want to bring shame on my parents. You know what I mean? Just Mm. quitting this great job. And so I quit that job on Wall Street and and I just set my sight on, I need to figure out who I'm meant to be in this world and what I'm meant to do. But, you know, like for me, when I had left the floor at that time, I was trying to look for clues on on who I was meant to be in the world. And the only things that made sense to me was I love small business. My dad was a small business owner, but it was also highly creative. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, these are the things that I'm passionate about, that I'm interested in, that I think I have some talent in, but what does that mean when it comes to a career? And I think in our society, up until now, we've done a really crappy job at preparing young people to understand who they are, what their strengths are, and how to apply them in a modern work environment. After you left the floor, yeah. you go into marketing? No, I or went into publishing. Oh, publishing, my, that's right. I, my idea was like, okay, well, there's the advertising side of magazine publishing. There's the creative side. Maybe this is a place where I can thrive. And I started with a temp agency, and I got myself a position at Gourmet Magazine, which was awesome because I love food. I was an assistant in the ad sales department. My desk was right near the test kitchen, so all the editors would <laughs> bring like a sample of the recipe. I'm like, this is the best job ever. Fantastic. Fantastic. Meanwhile, though, fast forward six months in, I start hearing these voices again, Jill. Like, this isn't who you are. This isn't what you're meant to do. This isn't who you're meant to be. And I'm like, am I nuts? Why do I keep hearing these voices? I'm a very hard worker. I want to work. I'm not looking to just go get married and stay home. Like, that wasn't my path. I thought a little more introspectively and I'm like, okay, let me try and step back and see this more clearly. I don't really want to become my boss who was an ad executive. Hmm. I also don't foresee myself becoming the publisher who was this high-powered woman. She was amazing, but I did not aspire to become her or have her job. Hmm. And I said, well, why am I wasting my time and theirs trying to climb this corporate ladder? So I took a step back and I said, okay, maybe all these things have been too business-oriented, too numbers-oriented, right? Wall Street, ad sales. Maybe I'm just lacking this creative side. So I said, what about the editorial side of magazines? I hopped over, got a position as an assistant at Mademoiselle Magazine. No longer there, like many beloved magazines of of yesteryear. But anyway, I I started working there. I'm like, this has got to be a chill. I'm working with designers and photographers, you know, seeing new places, going on photo shoots. This has got to be what I'm meant to do. Of course, about six months in, these that voices come back. That goddamn voice. It never stops. You should have like, your your hashtag should be like, I hear voices. It, it's actually, you know what? It should be because right? it's still true to this day. I'm actually really grateful to my mom though because she was the one that really instilled in me the fact that all of us have this small voice inside and you have to listen to it. Right. She taught that to me in the context of the fact that I was very independent as a kid and I wanted to walk myself to school. I didn't want her walking me. I wanted to do it on my own. And she said, look, 
the only way I'm going to let you walk to school on your own is if you promise me that if somebody pulls up in a car next to you and says, hey, little girl, I want some candy, and you hear that little voice inside, go run, you're going to listen to that little voice. Mm -hmm. So she trained me over and over again that I have wisdom inside that I need to pay attention to that would help me. So cut to me back at Mademoiselle. I start hearing these voices again. One day I'm on the internet when I probably shouldn't have been and I stumbled upon an article at the time that was about this new profession back then. This is like 1999 now, we're going way back. And it was all about the world of coaching and consulting, which was brand new. We weren't in the state that we are right now where everyone has heard of coaching and consultants and stuff like that. And I read this article, Jill, and I swear to you, something inside of me lit up like a Christmas tree. It was metaphorically speaking, like the clouds parted, little angels, you know, shot sunbeams, like, and I was like, this is who I am. This is what I'm meant to do. But the logical, rational part of my mind was so quick to speak up. It was like, you're 23 years old. You're in debt right now. You can't seem to hang on to a job. You're a loser. Who the hell's going to hire a 23-year-old life coach? This is nuts. And yet I couldn't deny that something about this world felt right to me on a cellular level. Mm. So I signed up for a three-year coach training program. I did that at night. It was all done remotely. I kept my mademoiselle job during the day. So I was working during the day at the magazine, studying this new profession at night. And then I get a call from the HR department um, at Condé Nast. And they had a promotion for me to go to Vogue. This was my fork in the road. So the promotion at Vogue was more money, more prestige, obviously a steady paycheck, a respectable job. The other option was to quit and do this weird life coaching thing that no one had ever heard of. I didn't know how to start a business. I was already in debt, but it felt like the rightest thing I'd ever come across. So I turned down the Vogue promotion. I quit my job and I started figuring out how to build a business at 23. And I just went back to bartending and waiting tables, which is part of how I helped put myself through college. And you like to eat. So you yes. fed. Well, that's good. Completely. And I'm not going to lie. I enjoy a good glass of wine every now and again. So being able to have a little glass of wine, have good food, you know, work on my coaching business during the day and still keep a roof over my head. It worked. So this coaching business still exists. Oh, yes. It has evolved many times. And so and in, in addition to your whole YouTube fame and fortune, talk a little bit about what it is that keeps people stuck. You know, people will often think about coaching when I hear about it, maybe like third hand. Oh, my boss told me I should get a coach. And it's usually about almost a negative. Yes. Not I want to get better, but more like, uh, you know, you have this issue or there's a stumbling block. What is it that most people are coming to you seeking? I think people, you know, in current day world, I see this all the time because I read comments and I have my team always forwards on emails that people send us privately. They often stumble upon my work when they're in a really tough place, when they're finding themselves at some crossroads. Maybe they're about to make a career transition and they're feeling really insecure or life has knocked them on their butt. They've you know, had an illness or maybe they're going through a divorce or they've had some other life event that has really rocked them back on their heels and they're feeling a lot of self-doubt and they're feeling lost, quite frankly. And they're just looking for something that can help them get regrounded and find some clarity and some direction and some steps to get back on their feet. You know, it it does sort of match up to your voice, your whole, your aura is essentially the title of your book, which is everything is figure outable. 
I mean, look, some things aren't like illness, like you're sick, you get a terrible diagnosis. But even that you say, like, it is there's a plan. Yes. So I want to speak into this because sometimes people they're like, oh, my God, this is a great title. I really understand it. I really feel that it's true. But wait, wait, wait. What about these certain things? I remember, first of all, when I was writing the book in the beginning of the manuscript process, I was out to brunch with friends and one of my friends brought her 10 year old son to brunch. And so we're going around the table and they're like, Marie, what are you working on? New book. What's it called? Everything is figureoutable. The 10 year old's like, no, it's not. Nope, definitely not. And I was like, this is awesome. I'm like, tell me more, young man. And I said, what do you believe is not figureoutable? And he said, well, you know, we humans can't grow working wings out of our back and fly away. That's and I was true. like, it is true. I said, it's true right now, though. I said, you, have you heard of CRISPR? Because fast forward 20 or 30 years, we don't know that. I said, and we human beings can indeed fly. And he's like, oh, I guess you're right. He's like, oh, well, what about this one? I can't bring my dog back from the dead, the one that died like three years ago. And I was like, well, that's very true. But I said, look, scientists are working on cryogenics and there is such a thing as dog cloning, as weird as that is. And he was like, oh, you're right. So conversations like this and with other people, and we're going to get to the illness thing in a minute because it's important, inspired me to create a set of rules, which is like a mental container that helps us use this phrase and this philosophy for its intended purpose, which is to help us create positive change in our own lives and then create meaningful change in the world around us. So here are the three rules of the figureoutable philosophy. Rule number one, all problems or dreams are figureoutable. Rule number two, if a problem isn't figureoutable, it isn't really a problem. It's a fact of life Mm. or a law of nature like death Right, you've got end-stage cancer. You're not going to cure yourself. That's right. Right. Might not be possible. Rule number three, you may not care enough to solve a particular problem or reach a particular dream, and that's okay. Go back and find something you do care about, and then we go back to rule number one. But let's talk about illness for a second because it touches all of our lives in some form at some place in our life. When people say, what about trauma, addiction, a life-changing or a life-altering diagnosis, are you telling me those things are figureoutable? And I say yes, and here's why. When I first shared this idea, it was on Oprah's Super Soul Sessions a few years back. So this concept started spreading around to people I'd never met. They'd never worked with me. They never watched my YouTube channel. They never did any of our programs. And one woman in particular wrote to me. It was a woman named Jen, and she said this. She's like, Marie, I loved your Oprah talk. This is a lesson my mom has been trying to teach me my whole life. And in fact, we sat down together. We watched it. It was amazing. But then everything changed. My beautiful mom, who's like my best friend, got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and suddenly nothing seemed figure outable. She said, but I took a step back and I looked more deeply and here's what I found. I could figure out how to get nursing care for my mom who lives in a rural area. I could figure out how to find foods that she could actually tolerate. And then this was the big one. I could figure out how to get medical equipment so my mom could spend her last weeks, and in fact, her last five weeks on this earth, exactly where she wanted to be, which was in her own home. So Jen said, I can say without a shadow of a doubt that everything really is figureoutable. And thank you for sharing this phrase that made such a huge difference to me and, uh, and her mom. And I think that when we feel out of control, yes, that's when you can really get into the, and you say you've got to guard against your negative thoughts, right? Yes. And I, I think you're absolutely right that you cannot change a, a fact of life. But there are ways that you can cope with it in a more productive way. That's right. Right. And it's about finding your own inner strength and your resources to meet the challenges that life will present you with in the, the most strong and creative and resilient way. I highlighted this and dog-eared it too. Two four-letter words that will annihilate your BS excuses. <laughs> 
Those two four-letter words are can't versus won't. You know, Jill, when we start to consider or maybe even embrace this notion that everything is figureoutable, the next thing we have to contend with is, well, what's stopping us, right? If we have a challenge in our life of any nature, personal or professional, what's stopping us from figuring this thing out? And one of the biggest things is our excuses, those tiny little lies that we tell ourselves that I've seen in my work over the past two decades fall into three main buckets. I don't have the time. Mm. I don't have the money. Mm. I don't have the know-how. And the way that we start to annihilate those BS excuses is paying closer attention to our language. So, for example, 99% of the time, whenever we humans say that we can't do something, can't is really a euphemism for won't. And what does won't mean? Won't means we don't really want to. We're not willing to do the work. It's not that important to us. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to change around our other priorities. We don't want to take the risk. We don't want to put in the time. And again, not 100% of the time, yeah, of course. 99% of the time. And I think when you start to have that level of radical self-honesty with yourself, that's when you go, oh, I get it. I love the um, the opportunity cost of wasting your time. Yes. I love this chart. I thought it was the funniest thing. It's a today's unconscious cost. So you say 30 minutes a day dicking around on your phone, social media, total time spent per year, 182 and a half hours a year, 22 full eight-hour workdays, what you could have accomplished. Michelle Obama-like arms, or aspire to it. Build a brand new website, learn how to meditate. I do think that we always overestimate what um, we have to do. Maybe you can appreciate this, you know, coming from like sort of a strong Italian-American family. Yeah. And that you say, there are certain things in your family about, well, well, I have to do this because like that's what the family does. And so I've been um, the person on the other side. So, well, you don't have to. That's right. You actually have choice. About everything. And that seems to me the part where people get really stuck where like I don't have a choice like I broke tradition in the family like I broke the family basically (laughs) I went to one last was it a wedding or a baby shower I can't remember what it was in the big Italian family and I said I'm not doing showers anymore oh my goodness I just had this conversation with myself I said I'm I'm not doing showers I'm not doing showers anymore well you have to no you don't I have to they are the worst and so I broke the tradition and, and I stopped and they don't even invite me. And now even Mark, I said, I didn't go to his, they were having a baby shower. And I was like, I will send you the best gift that you will get. The most money spent on a gift. It will be the best. I am not coming. Yeah. Jill, I feel like you just saying this just create like we're like instant best friends. I literally just had this conversation two nights ago and I'm like, I'm done. I will honor. I will send a note. I will congratulate. I will love you. I will provide the most beautiful gift. I don't want to sit around for hours. I just don't. I have no interest. And we have a choice. We do. And and to your point, yes, our choices have consequences. Right. But but we still do have a choice. Right. And I think that's the thing that's that becomes fun then to figure out. It's like, how do you maintain relationships and not have everyone think you're a total butthole um, <laughs> by making some powerful choices? <laughs> they may think that about me. This is Jill on Money. Hey, gang, it's me, Jill Schlesinger. You know that. You're listening to The Pod. Certified financial planner, CBS News business analyst, host of this here podcast, Jill on Money. And I am here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. They're helping people achieve financial well-being with simple and transparent banking products, including Clarity Money. That's a free personal finance management app that's part of the Marcus family. 
Clarity Money is your AI-powered financial champion that shows you a simple view of your finances together in one place. They recently launched a weekly budgeting feature that you've just got to try. The app does the hard part for you and calculates your average weekly spend by category. You can take that information so you can set informed budget goals based on what matters most to you. You can also subscribe to budget alerts to help keep you on track and start with a clean slate every week. Who doesn't want that? It's super easy to use and can make a task like budgeting kind of fun. So go check it out. Download Clarity Money through Google Play or iTunes or visit Marcus.com forward slash Clarity. And now back to our interview with Marie Forleo. The F word you need to embrace. Now, when I talk about the F word, of course, it's fiduciary, which is... um, uh, you'll read about that in my book. Your F word is fear. Yes. And what is it about fear that that you like? Well, first of all, I think it's one of the most misunderstood F words. You know, most of us understand and know that fear is an evolutionary response. It's the reason that we're alive, that any of us are here. So in that sense, it's very useful. But when we start to think about the type of fear that keeps us stuck and small, the type of fear that keeps us from speaking up in our relationships, from making a big change at work, from pursuing some creative idea or dream that we really want to do, that's the kind of fear that I want to talk about because I think that what we don't understand is that fear is always helpful if it's properly understood. And here's what I like to say. Fear is a GPS for where your soul most wants to go. It is always trying to guide you towards that, which is going to provide maximum opportunity for growth, maximum opportunity for satisfaction. It's not going to be all, you know, rainbows and daisies and unicorns. Like you're going to absolutely stumble. It's going to be difficult, but it's always trying to guide you towards your highest version of aliveness. When you think about dogs, I have a toy Australian shepherd. His name is Kuma. I love him. He doesn't have language skills, right? So when the UPS guy comes to my door and knocks, Kuma's barking his head off. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if we're playing ball and he gets really excited, He's barking his head off. He can't distinguish or tell me what's going on. He can just bark. Babies, same thing, right? As an infant, is going to cry if it's got a poopy diaper. Sometimes infants cry when they're hungry. Sometimes they cry when they're just really ex- like excited. Something else is going on. Your fear is the same way. Fear is doing only what she can do, which is to make you feel something. And we've often misinterpreted that signal. So if we feel fear, we think it means stop, danger, don't move ahead. But what if your fear is like jumping up and down inside of you going, this thing, this thing, you should really move ahead and do it. It's going to be amazing if you just move ahead with it. So I think in that way, we really misinterpret fear and we don't grab the gift that she's there to give us, which is, again, making us move towards something which I is like going to maximize you, our growth. I, I do love that you feminized her because yes. it's like, because you also say that the way to really incorporate fear and listen to fear is also to have it prompt action. Yeah. So she's going to prompt you to do something. And now it may not be where you think it's going. Yeah. Right. Because it could be that like, I'm fearful of, I don't know, like I'm fearful of starting a new business. Right. right. And it may be that you explore it and you're like, actually, I like what I do. That's right. And that's okay. That's completely okay. So a little more context around that. I think action is always the antidote to fear, you know, and fear isn't the enemy waiting to stop feeling afraid is. So many people have this notion that if they just prepare enough, they research enough, they get ready enough that there's going to come a day where they're not going to feel that fear. And that's just total BS. We're going to have fear until we die. 
And so if you recognize fear, not only as your friend, but it's prompting you to action, those are two good steps. And I think the third one, which we go into in the book. So if anyone feels like fear stops them in life, I would just highly recommend get the book and do the chapter on fear. Don't read it because there's a series of tests that you can walk yourself through around the worst case scenario, like what can possibly happen if you follow this idea, take that step to start a business, change your career, make a big change in your relationship. What are the worst things that could happen if it all goes down to hell in a handbasket? So when you start to get these things out of your head and write them down on the page, it's amazing how they lose a lot of their charge. Mm. Not only that, you actually start to make plans to mitigate against the worst case scenarios happen. And you can start to plan for if it all did go wrong, what you would do to lift yourself back up. Like you make a concrete plan on paper so that it becomes less scary. But then there's another part, Jill. What people often don't do is the best case scenario. Like totally, yes. Just, when you wrote about this, I was laughing so hard because I'm like, oh, I always, I always plan for the worst case scenario because this is in my DNA. Yes. I really, I so I know that. But you're right. I will tell you a funny story. It's like a coaching story that you will find amusing. I used to have a tack board when I was running a business and managing money. A client of mine came in. He was a shrink, and he goes, "What's that on your tack board by your computer?" I said, "Oh my God, that's the worst trade I ever made." It's like the list of the top three worst trades I ever made. It's to give me humility. And so I know that I'm never bigger than the market. He goes, well, why don't you put the best three? Oh, that's, it sounds like another kindred spirit with me, right? We need that balance. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of us don't take enough time to look at the best case scenarios from following that fear, from taking that risk, from making that move that kind of gives us a little wobbly knees. Because when you start to look at what are all the beautiful things that can come out of it and you see that list. So for me, when I was considering starting my own business and thinking about the potential for financial freedom, the potential for waking up every day, actually passionate about what I was doing, the potential to learn constantly and to make a difference to others, like that list, Jill, kept getting longer and longer and got more exciting and more exciting. And all of a sudden I was like, I must do this. All of the potential benefits so overrode the fear that it became just a non-issue. Tell me the kind of client that's hard for you. It's the person who is kidding themselves. They actually don't want to change. They just want to complain. Like they want to kvetch, they want to, but this won't work and that won't work and this won't work. And they're not really committed to change. They're only committed to hearing themselves talk about how crappy everything is. And they place themselves, quite frankly, in some role of a victim mm-hmm. where it's just you don't like, like a victim. I, I just have no tolerance. All of us have really difficult things that we go through in life. There's always scenarios and situations that we don't choose. You know, there are things that we're going to face and go through that are really, really painful. But then at some point you have to ask yourself, now what? Mm-hmm. How am I going to respond to this? Who do I want to be in response to this circumstance? And how do I want to take whatever this crappy thing is and turn it into some kind of gift, either through meaning or contribution to others? So when people aren't willing to kind of move to that stage, it's just, it's not a good fit for me because I'm very, very action oriented. Okay. So I was in a situation, help me understand whether or not I did a good or a bad thing or a decent thing. My friend's kid asked me for some advice because often people will come to me because a lot of these decisions are financially based, right? And I want to do this and I want to do this. And I actually had hooked this person up with a coach who I knew. I knew was going to be an action-oriented person, but a little bit of like a, 
a good cop, bad cop in one person. Like, I'm not going to let you sit there and whine. I'm going to kick your ass a little bit. But I'll hug you yep. after, right? Absolutely. So, so you sort of strike me as that type-ish, yes. right? Okay. So kid is, you know, stumbling around a little bit and offered a job and says, well, I don't really know if that's my passion. And I said, you have a family of five and you need health insurance. Yeah. <laughs> So I went for health insurance over passion. Yeah. And I said, what if this is, just think of it as a temporary, it's a stopgap. Yeah. You guys need health insurance. Yeah. You have five people. That you're responsible. That you're responsible for. Yeah. So you need health insurance and it is not your dream job. But can you figure out what that dream job is while you have health insurance? Yeah. Is that okay? I'll t- I am going to raise my hand to say this is very okay, especially okay. when you have dependents, when you have a family of five to take care of. And look, here, I run my own business. I love my business. And again, it's not unicorns and daisies and diamonds every day. There are many parts to what I do that sometimes want to make me stick a fork in my eye. So it's not all about like passion all the time, 24-7, right. right? But I think your advice to them was so sound because, again, when we have responsibilities, we got to take care of those responsibilities. And doing an honest day's work to have those benefits to take care of your family while you do some of that deeper introspection to figure out what may be the ultimate dream job for you, whether you want to go find it or create it. I think it's an adult response to life. Yeah. Sometimes you just sort of have to like eat it a little bit. You all of us do. You do. I mean, if you want to be in relationship with other people, right? If you want to actually take care of others, which I think most of us do when you have a family, Mm -hmm. my goodness, right? That's the whole reason you have a family. There are going to be times and seasons and stages in life where your wants and desires have to take a back seat for a moment so that you can take care of people you love. And I think when you have that type of dynamic synergy, there's going to become a stage and season where they're going to take care of you. What don't you like about running the business? For me, the, the pieces that I love are all around the content creation and being connected with people and working with them one-on-one. The places that can get a little grindy are where, let's say there's a change in technology and we have to figure out, okay, we have to kind of pull back on all of our projects and goals because we really need to handle some of this more foundational stuff. It's actually very similar to the scenario that you just described with the person you gave advice to. There are times when we can't just plow ahead and do all the things that we want because for the health for me, of my company and of the business, we have to go like, whoa, we need to change our tech stack here. Or whoa, we need to make a change in personnel or we need to bring more team members on. We need to hire and have more sourcing, which inevitably impacts how fast I can go with the other goals of the company. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. How many people do you have working for you? We have a little over 30 now full time. That's a lot. Yeah. And we're all distributed. So I run totally hate managing people. That's what I learned after running a company. Did really hated it. Yeah. So Ugh. it's it's I'll tell you it, for me I have amazing team members that are incredible leaders because they recognize my skill set, my gifts and my genius is doing exactly what we're doing right now, Jill, is having conversations, is sharing really great ideas and concepts and tools that I think help people move the needle in their life. I should not be managing people. I should also not be necessarily getting into the grime and the the grit and the details of our tech stacks, but I do have to lead and help manage those things to a certain degree. Progress is not perfection. Yes. That's what we focus on. Progress, not perfection. I think that it must be interesting for you to deal with so many professionals in different ages. And the idea of this perfectionist mindset is so... It can be such a stumbling block. It's so destructive. I mean, from an emotional level, there was a study that I came across while researching the book. Um, they were studying folks who had taken their own life. 
and interviewing the friends and family of those people. Mm. And in over 50% of these interviews, the family had reported that the person who was no longer here was a perfectionist. <sighs> that that's how devastating, like in the extreme, right? We're looking at this on a continuum. In the extreme, these beautiful souls never felt like they could measure up. They could never be good enough for these standards that they had in their head. And it created that much pain and that much sorrow that they're no longer here with us. Mm. And so we look at, you know, how perfectionism can be literally deadly. But then when we look at it on a day-to-day basis, so many of us can, you know, keep polishing and tweaking and refining and hold ourselves back from learning, from growing and contributing because we don't think either we're good enough or our ideas are good enough. And so the thing that's helped me, because I have these tendencies, is to always focus on progress, not perfection. What does that mean? If I do anything, my only measure of success is did I learn something? Did I move the needle ahead? Even if I took a step and I flopped and I hit the wall or I scraped my knees, what lesson can I learn from this? And here's a little mantra that always helps me, Jill. I win or I learn, but I never lose. I win or I learn, but I never lose. You were making a reference to some people who set these goals, right? And if they don't hit that goal, they feel like a failure. And it's just so short-sighted. You know, I think about failure as an incredibly short-sighted concept. It's like this. Let's say you were going to the movies, right? You and I are going to the movies. And we're excited and we're sitting there with our popcorn. And, you know, we're having fun and we're watching all the characters on the screen. And then like 20 minutes in, the characters hit a conflict they fail. And we're like, screw this. And we just get up and walk out. Right. And we're like, they're failures. We're done. That's not true. We have no idea where that storyline is going Mm -hmm. unless we actually kept our butts in the seats and watched the whole thing. And our lives are very much like that. I don't know about you, but there's definitely moments where I have hit a wall. And in that moment, yes, I could have characterized it as a quote unquote failure, but I got up and kept going. And I was like, oh, that was just a lesson along the way. And I think that age does help you with that. Yes. I, feel, I mean, the maturity is and, and life experience will show you that, right? Yep. Um, part of the progress myth you have is this cute little um, graph where someone has like basically a starting point from like the lower left part of the XY axis and going up sort of a ski slope up, right? Yes. Up the mountain. And then you have a squiggly line that almost looks like my signature. It's ups and downs and ups and downs. And it reminded me of a stock chart. Yes. It actually reminded me of how, you know how they used to have those charts and it would say like, if you've invested since, you know, 1902 and it looked like a beautiful chart where you never had a loss. Correct. What I always try to tell people is that there's so many periods of time where you're going to screw up. That's right. Where you're going to make a mistake, that your portfolio is going to go down and you're going to, and you're going to be able to recover from it. That's right. But again, only if you learn from it. Only if you learn from it. And of course, in the financial world, only if you don't pull out your money, right, at one of those low points. And I think it's the same thing with any type of creative project with progress, not perfection. You know, what progress really looks like is taking three steps forward, five back, one forward. You have a a momentary win and then all of a sudden you find yourself on your knees again and then you get back up and you, you know, it's, it is, it's like a squiggly line, but if you stay in the game over time, it does trend up, but you have to have the persistence to stay in it. All right. Um, you have some tactics to practice and one I want to focus on number four, which is ask what's the next right move. I love this because I feel like in any situation, Sometimes people will call our show and you know they've screwed up previously. I don't care about that. What's the next thing you should do, right? So explain how you interpret what's the next right move for people. Well, putting this in some context, I think whenever any of us screw up, 
we can almost feel like we need the whole plan now. Oh, what's the thing that's going to fix this thing ultimately? Like what are the 17 steps or the 25 steps or I need the whole concrete mapped out plan and it must work perfectly. And that can be really overwhelming and it can make people feel paralyzed and it can prevent them from moving ahead. But when you ask a really simple and actionable question like what's the next right step here? First of all, you tap into your own inner wisdom. Like for me, sometimes when I ask that question, if I'm feeling off my center or honestly, I'm frustrated or I'm just not having a good day, sometimes the next right action step is to drink a glass of water. Like it's that simple. I'm like, wow, I'm dehydrated. Or maybe I need a nap or I need to go take a walk around the block or I need to call a wise friend, someone who in that moment likely has more perspective than I do. And when you break it down into something that's that simple and that actionable, you help yourself gain momentum in a positive direction, Mm. right? So rather than me going like, how am I going to fix X, Y, or Z problem and make it all better tomorrow? It's like, that's not actionable. It's overwhelming. But the next right action step keeps it really simple and it keeps you tapped into your own inner sense of wisdom. And here's the thing, it's dynamic. You can apply this question in any situation and whatever context you're in, you're going to find an answer for yourself to take action on in that moment. I love it. This is so much fun. Thank you. To be continued? Yes, to be continued. Okay. Thank you for having me on. The book is Everything is Figure Outable, Marie Forleo. Before we started, I asked what was the best career decision you made? What was the worst? Ooh, the worst career decision I made, probably when I was um, a Carvel ice cream girl in New Jersey. I was about 16 years old and I was working with a guy who like, you know, made some move towards my butt. Like Mm -hmm. I forget if he like slapped my ass or like something in there Mm. and I didn't say anything. You know, that was probably the worst, like, you know, I will tell you this, and when I was even younger, I had an experience in school where a a young boy like snapped a a knife at my butt and I punched him in the eye and I gave him a black eye and I got sent to the principal's office. But I don't know why in that Carvel scenario, I like kept my mouth shut. That was your worst? Uh, Yeah. I could blame Cookie Puss for that. (laughs) You're listening to Jill on Money. Okay, it's time for the Marcus Minute. We're presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Today in the hot seat, it's Marie Forleo. Are you ready to play? Ready to play. What's one word to describe your relationship with money? Love. What's always worth spending on? Experiences. What's the dumbest thing you've spent money on? Clothes. How much do you spend on a haircut? About 250 It's your last day on earth. You've got 100 bucks in your pocket. What's your last meal? Mashed potatoes, pasta, chicken parmesan, and a lot of cheese. Marie Forleo, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Jill. Thanks so much to Marie Forleo. The book is called Everything is Figure Outable. We drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. Sometimes Mark throws in a bonus episode as well. You can get this podcast anywhere you get your podcast, but all we ask for is a rating and a review. That's it. We'd be so appreciative of both. Ratings and reviews, that's what we're seeking. And again, you can subscribe to Jill on Money on Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play, wherever. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer and executive chef. I'm going to give you that new title, Mark. We're distributed by Cadence 13. The show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week.